two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a new podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to the fifth episode of The Flip Side, Barclays new podcast series. I'm Marvin Barth, head of FX and Emerging Macro Strategy, and today I'm joined by my colleague Fabrice Montagnier, Barclays' chief UK economist. Together, we will explore and debate Brexit, where it might lead, and what lessons it might offer other countries as a living example of what deglobalization looks like. Welcome, Fabrice. Thank you, Marvin. Happy to be here. Throughout the world, we are witnessing a political backlash against the center-right, center-left political consensus on globalization. Some call these movements populist, while we have dubbed them the politics of rage. Regardless of what you call these movements, they are challenging the foundations of globalization as we know it. In the U.S., President Trump is aggressively confronting the status quo on trade. In Italy, an alternative coalition government is challenging the EU's authority to dictate member states' budgets. And in Germany, unprecedented losses to alternative political parties have effectively forced Chancellor Merkel into retirement. For many, the first warning shot of this movement was the UK's vote by referendum to leave the European Union. And the UK's exit, called Brexit, remains the most advanced manifestation of potential deglobalization. The UK is on a path to leave the most politically and economically integrated group of countries in the world, all in a bid to, quote, retake its sovereignty, end quote, in a clear step back from the multi-decade trend of increasing globalization. Today, Fabrice and I are going to debate some of the key issues related to Brexit and try and help you, our audience, better understand whether or not UK Leave voters actually intended to deglobalize, whether Brexit is a good or bad thing for Britain, whether the UK can agree to an exit deal with the EU, and what lessons Brexit may offer other countries struggling with the politics of rage. Fabrice, Let's start with the first question, an area where you and I may have different points of view. What did the UK actually vote for? Was it actually for deglobalization? Yes, Marvin, I think so. Um, take a look at the map of votes, and in particular the votes in favor of leaving the European Union. Lower income, higher unemployment regions stand out. These voters feeling left behind by the globalization as we know it, found a voice in the Vote Leave campaign. The interpretation of taking back control of the money, the laws and the border was inward-looking, nostalgic for some, nationalistic for others, but generally this was supported by the view that re-empowering the nation would lead to a better representation of their individual interests. From an economic point of view, it is perfectly reasonable to assume that voters who have not benefited from globalization or voters who, for instance, believe that their wages were dampened by immigration would be tempted to revert to national sovereignty rather than pursue the experiment of multinational globalization. Okay, I agree with you on the sources of frustration, um, but I'm not sure I agree that that's the same thing as voting for deglobalization. 
um, you know, yes, you had the characterization of the regions uh, and the typical voters well outlined there, um, but there were actually a large share of affluent voters, particularly in these rural areas that you mentioned, that did vote to leave. And in particular, when you look at polling, uh, both before and after the referendum, as to what was it that Leave voters were voting for, the top issue consistently is sovereignty, retaking sovereignty. It wasn't immigration, that was number two. And you can see this in trade. The most ardent Brexiteers want out of the EU to escape what they consider fortress Europe's high tariff barriers. They want to be able to negotiate their own deals with the rest of the world. Polls consistently show that the UK is the most pro-trade among advanced economies. So this is not pure fantasy on their point. And even on the immigration point, most Leave voters were concerned about the pace of immigration, not necessarily immigration as a concept itself. So I don't think this was a vote against globalization, but rather a vote for a different form of globalization. Now, one thing that I think we can both agree on is that regardless of whether or not those voters voted for globalization or deglobalization, they are actually getting deglobalization with this. Oh, yes, definitely. As, as you pointed out in your introduction, there is no market like the single market. This is not just a free trade area. This is an area free of all custom checks and barriers. It has a unified regulatory structure and policies that ensure level playing field between countries as though they were in a single country. Uh, this is unique in the world and resulted in the UK economy to be much more deeply integrated into the European economy than with the EU only two larger trading partners, China and the US. The UK's government intention to leave the single market is going to imply a significant degree of deglobalization as supply chains that now operate between UK firms and their European counterparts in, say, Germany, France and other member states may be disrupted by custom checks and possibly even tariffs going forward. Furthermore, while the UK may be able to negotiate trade agreements with other countries once it leaves the European Union, that process will take years, and in the meantime, it loses the benefits of trade deals that Europe has already negotiated for its members with dozens of countries like Canada, Japan, Singapore. Yes, and that brings up a question that still inspires debate among both opponents and proponents. Will Brexit ultimately be a good or a bad thing for the UK, Fabrice? So to me, I'm not going to hide it. I think there is significant downside risk to Brexit in any shape or form. As I said previously, there is no market like the single market, and leaving it will inevitably lead to lower level of wealth, assuming, of course, that openness and trade is a driver of economic growth, which we believe, right, Marvin? Yes. But how much worse off the UK will effectively be depends on several things. What kind of deal, if any, will the UK and the European Union agree to? And secondly, but maybe as importantly, what kind of deals the UK will be able to negotiate with other countries? Remember that when the UK leaves the European Union, it also likely loses access to the 50-plus preferential trade agreements that the European Union has with other countries. So for me, the downgrade of trade with the European Union, coupled with the difficulty to replace existing trade agreements with other countries, means that the overall impact of Brexit is clearly negative. 
It's fair to say, Fabrice, that the UK will pay a near-term economic price in the immediate aftermath of a Brexit, although that depends a lot on what actual deal is negotiated, which, as you know, we still don't know. But this is all just about the economics. And I want to go back to the point I made earlier that the top motivation for Leave voters was retaking sovereignty. Surveys show that three in five Leave voters anticipated and were willing to pay a significant economic price personally, not just as a nation, but personally in terms of jobs and lost income in order to retake their sovereignty. Somewhat more surprising to me was that another survey found that 87% of Northern Ireland Leave voters were willing to abandon the Good Friday peace accords that keep the border open between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to achieve independence from the EU. So this is about more than just economics, Fabrice. Yeah, but I, I think, Marvin, this is what Greeks call a Pyrrhic victory. You know, a victory that comes with such devastating losses that you wish you had lost the battle, actually. And what do respondents actually understand by significant economic costs? Remember also that the country, nearly half of it, voted to remain. And a large majority of Remain voters are fearful of the economic consequences of Brexit. Their voices should be considered too. Yeah, all the voices need to be considered. I just wanted to highlight that this is exactly that, a societal choice. And like the politics of rage in many of the countries we're witnessing, it encompasses many different public policy issues, not just economics. But as we are two economists debating, uh, maybe we should just stick to the economics here. So I want to ask you, why are you so convinced that even in the long run, the UK is going to be worse off under any Brexit deal? So, so listen, as I suggested previously, it's about comparing a, a given combination of trade arrangement to another combination. And the difficulty here is that the single market kind of stands out in its complexity and level of integration. So the question is basically, are you able to engineer a combination of uh, trade arrangements that could be superior to the current combination of single market plus existing preferential trade agreement the EU has signed with, uh, with other countries. And I think that will be very challenging. So listen, could such a combination exist? Yes, probably, to be fair. A, a better life outside the single market may exist. Is such a combination likely? Mm, I say no. And even if it was, how long will it take? Again, it is hard for me to be optimistic. Many things will have to go just right. The UK government will have to make a long sequence of optimal decision and get unusual cooperation from other governments in the process. And by the way, because the UK and the EU agreed to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland, they have worked out a so-called backstop protocol, guaranteeing the absence of border, even in the case of disagreement regarding the long-term economic relationship. However, the cost of this, as it stands, would be to keep the UK in a custom union with the European Union. That would preclude the UK from negotiating any other trade deals with third countries, erasing any possible trade gains from Brexit, but still leaving the UK without the full benefits of the single market. This backstop, while necessary as an insurance, would be the worst of all worlds if implemented as a permanent framework. Okay, I agree, Fabrice, that the odds are stacked against 
against the UK to improve its lot over what it has now in the single market. But I don't think it's impossible and I do think that people may underestimate the potential for something better, um, particularly because they tend to neglect two key underlying trends that may benefit the UK in this sense. The first is what's going on with technology. The second is ongoing politics of rage elsewhere in the world. The EU and a consensus of economists, in my view, are too quick to dismiss the UK's proposals to use technology to solve the contentious Irish border issue. Increasingly, everything around us is being digitized, particularly in commerce and in production. This enables a much easier tracking of the origin of not just finished goods, but also many intermediate goods. And that reduces or eliminates the need for physical customs borders. That would effectively replicate the frictionless trade within the single market between different customs jurisdictions and would allow the UK to retain its current close EU supply chains while remaining open to trade elsewhere in the world. So we implement technological solutions to remove any frictions in UK global trade, including possibly running a dual tariff system, as it was suggested by some on this side of the, of the pond or the channel. Am I the only one to find this complete fantasy? And fun fact, the technological solutions that would need to be implemented either do not exist yet, or at best are, are yet untested at this scale. So while I could agree that sometime in the future, big manufacturers, think about car sector or Airbus, for instance, where trade is very narrowly defined and repetitive, could benefit from such innovation. I think this is unlikely to spread to all import exports quickly. Also, this would lead to higher cost than currently, right? Okay, so you think that my technology issue is, is fantasy, that's fine. But let's not forget about the second point, about the politics of rage going on else, elsewhere. We need to consider what that implication is as well. And I think one of the great ironies out there is that President Trump's aggressive trade stance actually appears to be leading in the direction of lower trade barriers and freer trade in certain places. So for instance, the NAFTA replacement, uh, you know, All sides seem to agree this is actually a better agreement. Um, US-EU trade talks right now, while there's still worries about it, they seem to be going towards an agreement to eliminate a lot of tariffs. And let's not forget that whether he's being facetious or not, President Trump did propose at the last G7 meeting to drop all tariff barriers and subsidies among G7 members. If the US and the EU do move in that direction, and you combine that with my fantasy uh, world of technological customs boundaries, <laughs> um, you could have an arrangement that would effectively almost double the size of the single market, and certainly the UK would be a part of that. Yes, right. G7, tariff-free area. Still waiting for the follow-up tweet, Marvin. Yeah, okay. Also, Fabrice, we should consider that it's not all roses remaining in the EU either. I come back to this point about the ongoing politics of rage elsewhere and its downside for Europe. Remember that one of the key motivations for Europe in its negotiations with the UK, and as explicitly noted by President Macron of France, is that the UK must pay a price for leaving. How stable is a club that has to threaten its members to stay in? 
And then, of course, there's also the risks of irresponsibility by other members. So think about the responsible members having to put up money to support those that make poor financial decisions, as we saw with Greece, or as we may potentially be seeing with Italy right now. Yeah, sure. Even though on, on fiscal matters, um, you can opt out. Remember, the UK opted out to participate in the Greek bailout. Well, that sounds like the foundation for a stable union, to have some members in, some members out. Fair point, Marvin. But look, all I'm saying here is that eventually it will depend on trust, right? Uh, one example is the European-Norway trade agreement that largely depends on the goodwill of both to, to, make, to make it happen. And currently in the situation of the UK and the EU, I don't see those conditions met. Fair enough, Fabrice. But let's move on to the question du jour. Are we or are we not going to get a deal? And if you wouldn't mind for those of our audience members who are unfamiliar with the terminology around Brexit negotiations, what exactly do we mean by a deal in this case? Sure, Marvin. By deal, we actually mean the ticket out of the European Union, which is a withdrawal agreement that includes a transition uh, towards the long-term economic relationship that still needs to be negotiated. And whether or not this deal will go through, well, that's where I'm maybe more optimistic than you are, Marvin, because I think it will get, go through. Reasons, I can give at least three. So first of all, much of the noise around the agreement was predictable and rhetorical. This is posturing in my view. Second of all, the momentum is likely to turn in favor of the deal as time passes. Remember, the much-announced leadership contests, for instance, failed, and Theresa May is still there and launching a campaign to win public opinion in favor of that withdrawal agreement. Also keep in mind that the vote in Parliament will not be secret. MPs will be held accountable for their choices, and the motion can be sweetened by amendments. This, together with business ultimately lining up to support the deal, could tilt the odds in favor of Theresa May's agreement. And thirdly, don't forget, the parliament has already voted in favor of a deal. It has passed a motion earlier this year, preventing the government to pursue a no-deal strategy. Well, Fabrice, I wish I could be as confident as you. I'm really concerned that we are on a path to no deal here and that the UK is going to exit the EU next spring with no transition agreement on trade and no long-term trade uh, uh, agreement. Yeah, but this is still not a crash out, right? A crash out defined as, you know, planes don't fly anymore between UK yeah, it, and Europe. It, it, exactly. I'm, I'm talking, I, I agree the basic legal framework for commerce will be agreed before exit. Yes, Marvin, but this may require an extension of Article 50 negotiation. This is a failsafe built in the two-year countdown allowing for the EU and the UK to unanimously agree to extend the period of negotiations by, say, a couple of weeks or a couple of months to negotiate those basic legal frameworks. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I was imprecise when I said this spring the UK may exit, because it probably will take, in that case, um, some renegotiation of those basic uh, legal frameworks. Uh, but the reason why I'm really concerned that you will get a no-deal outcome here, not a crash-out, but no-deal, is that we come back to this key issue of sovereignty. The backstop that you mentioned around Northern Ireland 
And as you highlighted, it potentially keeps the UK subject to EU laws forevermore, um, the worst of all worlds. So this conflicts directly with the primary motivation of Leave voters, and it's hard for me to see enough uh, members of the current uh, um, coalition government sticking together and passing this measure. So I agree, Marvin. Risks of a no deal have definitely increased. But let me try again. Do you think conservatives are willing to take the risk of an economic shock that will almost certainly hit the UK economy in such a scenario? And also, do you think conservatives are willing to jeopardize Brexit itself? Because the extension we mentioned earlier could also be used to organize new elections or even a re-referendum. I don't think so, especially with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party neck and neck with them in the polls. Yes, but Fabrice, do they really want to go to the polls following a deal that a majority of UK voters, including a plurality of Remain voters, see as inconsistent with the meaning of the referendum? And with regards to facing Jeremy Corbyn in an election, Joe Johnson, a prominent Remainer uh, conservative, said passing this deal could lead to a landslide electoral loss for the conservatives on the scale of 1997 that brought Tony Blair to power. So the risks actually run both directions. Absolutely. But I mean, some of the polls that, that you have been mentioning also show that, you know, a majority of voters would actually be fine with any kind of deal rather than no deal at all. That's, that's true, but remember that the electoral calculus here is we have a minority government that needs every single vote. Um, and we also have an opposition Labour Party that is itching to bring about an election by inflicting a major uh, defeat on this government. So, look, I, I fear we could easily go down a long rabbit hole regarding the prospects for early elections here in the UK, but I'd rather save that for another episode of The Flip Side. So, instead, let's tackle our final question. What can the rest of the world learn from what's happening here with Brexit in the context of deglobalization, Fabrice? Frankly, I'm a bit unsure of what can be learned here, given the uniqueness of Brexit. For instance, I would refrain actually against reading too much into the result of a referendum on a complicated matter such as European membership. Once the true economic, social and political costs of Brexit are exposed and understood, voters may actually regret their choice, but may be unable to reverse it. European integration builds on nearly 70 years of conscious efforts. It has been a long and sometimes arduous journey. This is very different than renegotiating some parameters of a free trade agreement like NAFTA that you mentioned earlier. I agree with you that the single market is unique, Fabrice, but I still think that there are some lessons to be learned here. The first is how much of globalization we take for granted. Yes, other international agreements are far less complex than the EU's agreements. But all these little issues that keep coming up in these negotiations, things that we completely take for granted, like overflight rights and landing rights and who constitutes a WTO member and things like this, I think people just didn't understand how much globalization impacts our daily life. The second lesson is 
that the politics of deglobalization are incredibly messy, as we're seeing in the current debates over the deal in the UK Parliament. What we might call the rejures uh, and the globalists are now roughly evenly split across all advanced economies. And that's a debate that is going to continue for a long time. And upending 75 years of globalization abruptly is no easy task in an environment like that. And yes, perhaps I may be fanciful here, um, but I do think that we need to keep in mind here that the politics of rage need not imply deglobalization, but rather a different form of globalization. It's good. Hope springs eternal with you, Marvin. <laughs> you know, a great thinker of our time, special agent Fox Mulder of X-File, said the truth is out there and it hurts. <laughs> Fair enough, Fabrice, but with that, I think we need to call a close to this episode of The Flipside. Thank you for joining me, Fabrice. I suspect that we will meet again to discuss more Brexit-related issues. Clients can read deeper analyses of our thoughts on Brexit in This is a Drama, Not a Thriller, and The Most Frequently Asked Questions on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/ib.